morning, we turn our attention to John chapter 12, beginning with uh, the middle part of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory, his glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will certainly judge him, or excuse me, will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we see in our passage today that your commandment is eternal life. and We know that you, Lord Jesus, you are the only one who has the words of eternal life. So we ask that you would speak to your children this morning, implanting your word in us through your Holy Spirit and leading us to life. We ask in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, with this passage this morning, we come to what is the end of Jesus' public ministry. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that the setting here is, is Jesus is, is approaching the Passover. So he's come, he's taken his disciples, and he's come down to Jerusalem. And the Passover would have been this big feast where a lot of crowds would have gathered to celebrate. And he's there, and he's been engaged in a, a lot of dialogues, conversations with crowds. And it's the last words here are his last message to his public audience. After this section, Jesus goes away and he takes his disciple and he goes off in private and takes his disciples. And we'll see the next scene is when he washes their feet and then he prays over them. And it's the night before, that passage is set the night before his death. And so in this passage, in chapter 12, what we get are Jesus' last words in public prior to his execution. And so what is Jesus concerned about here? What is the focus of his last message that he spoke in public in John's gospel? Well, you might have heard a word that he kept repeating 
through this passage. More than anything else, I think this passage is about belief. The last message Jesus gives to the crowd before he goes off to the cross is that he wants them to believe. And when you remember that that's John's whole purpose in writing this book, it makes sense. We've mentioned it before, but chapter 20, John tells us exactly why he wrote this book. He says, I have written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And that's what our passage is about today. It is about belief. John shows us what seems to be Jesus' main objective in his whole public ministry. That is, the whole time he was, he was in public, he was trying to get people to believe. He's trying to persuade people to leave their darkness and follow him into the light. And we see that there's a progression here in this passage. And the progression goes through really three main categories. And these are going to be our points for today. We're going to see that Jesus starts in un, with unbelief. He addresses unbelief. And you see that in, in uh, verse 37, right? John's describing a, people, a group of people who don't believe. But then from unbelief, we progress to what you can call closet belief. And this is the group in verse 42 where you have a, a number of people who believe in him, but they won't confess it. So I'm calling that closet belief. And then finally, you see Jesus addressing in verse 44, whoever believes. And so that third group we're going to call eternal belief. And so you can think of it as a spectrum from belief to closet belief to eternal belief. And it's not that this is like a progression that everyone goes through, that we walk from, from unbelief and into closet belief and to eternal belief. But it is the categories for here in our passage for understanding what's happening. And so let's first look at, at unbelief and see what, what Jesus and what John have us to learn in, in these three categories. First, starting with unbelief. When I first started studying this passage, looking at this text, I thought that's what the whole point of all of it was, from 36 all the way through 50, is that we are going to look at what is unbelief. And one theologian even calls this section, he labels this section as Jesus' theology of unbelief. Now, as we'll see, I think there's more going on in this passage. He's not only speaking to unbelief, he's speaking to belief as well. But it is an important theme here, and it is important for us to look at it and see what we can learn from it. And I think we'll notice two main aspects of what unbelief is as presented here. And so first, unbelief we see, it is the absence of Jesus. And if you notice how the passage started in verse 36, it says that Jesus departed from them and he hid himself from them. And I think the point here is that there is not, you can't have belief without Jesus. Or said conversely in the other way, right? When Jesus is not present, there will be no belief. And that point, it becomes a little more clear if we back up and read the whole verse. If you notice in your bulletin, we start at verse 36b. Well, the whole verse is, is, contains a sentence from, uh, that we read last week. And let me read the, the entire verse because you see the contrast here. And it's a stronger picture of unbelief as it's tied to Jesus' absence or presence. So in verse 36, it starts with Jesus talking. And Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Did you see the contrast there, all within that one verse? While you have the light, believe in the light. And then Jesus departs. And then even though people had seen the signs that he did, they did not believe. And I think what John is cluing us into is that in the absence of Jesus, you see unbelief. Unbelief is tied to his absence. And this is a repetitive theme throughout the book of John. You know, here we use, he uses the imagery of, of light. Jesus is the light, right? Whoever believes in the light, while you believe in the light, you become sons of light. It's the light that we see and we understand. It is the light by which we believe. And so in the absence of Jesus' light, there can be no belief. Later in the gospel, John is more explicit, not using imagery of light, but he says, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father apart from him. What he's saying there is that apart from Jesus, there will be no belief. I think those of you who know the Lord, and especially those who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, you know this intuitively. And it's whether, whether we think of it in terms of how we first came to faith or whether we think of it in terms of those moments in our journey where we've either wandered from the Lord or turned uh, apart from him when we've experienced his absence. Both of those are tied to the presence and the absence of Jesus. When we feel Jesus' presence, when he is present with us, when we acknowledge it and he is there, that is when we believe. That is how he works his belief. And yet we can still confess that we are prone to wander. We are prone to turn from his presence. Or to use the words in this passage, there are times where we become tempted to close our eyes, to blind ourselves, or to harden our hearts. And so belief is not only tied to the absence and presence of Jesus, it's also tied to a hardening of heart and a blindness of sight. John quotes twice from the book of Isaiah to make this point. In verse 40, he tells us about those who don't, don't believe, and he says, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. And now this is, this is a difficult text in itself. Uh, it's a complicated text, right? We, we can ask, why does John highlight the fact that God has done these things? You see in verse 39, John says, therefore they could not believe, and then later in 40, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. And understanding the magnitude of this, of how belief works, how it works in in terms of what God does and what we do, what God's responsible for and what we're responsible for, that is a very complex, a very old, old conversation that's centuries old. There's lots of scholars that give really big words for the different theories that you can take there. But rather than getting into the debate of how all of that works, I think we can just stop at the surface and say, When I look at it, what's important here is that we do see that unbelief is tied to not seeing and hardness of hearts. And that's the main point that John's making, I think, with this part of of this passage, is knowing we don't know all the implication of God's involvement, but we know that it involves God miraculously opening blind eyes and softening hard hearts, not just softening hard hearts, but renewing and restoring and bringing dead hearts to life. And that's exactly what Jesus' ministry has been about. He has been about 
He has come to give light to the blind. And he has come to lay down his life and reveal his glory, even in death, so that he can turn unbelief into belief. And so that unbelief in verses 36 through 41 is marked by the absence of Jesus and it's tied tied to blind eyes and hard hearts. And then moving on to verse 42, you see the next category of belief is what I've called closet belief. And in these verses, John makes a stark contrast between those who don't believe and then there's a new group. And picking up in verse 42, he says, nevertheless, and that's a strong contrast, nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And this is our second group this morning, those who believe but don't confess it. I think we should ask, what what should we make of this group? How should we understand them? Well, to understand them, we first need to know what it means to confess. Because though that's a word we use in our liturgy a lot, you've already heard it this morning. I think it's a word we use as Christians a lot. It's not a word that you would hear around Bellingham all that much, at least in this way. Like, if, if you were just to stop in a random Bellingham conversation, you wouldn't hear your average Bellingham person asking, hey, what is it that you confess? What is it that you confess in your life? Who, who is it? Uh, and, and so how do we understand what confession is in this context? Well, I think, in short, confession in this context is declaring allegiance to Jesus. Or in a, said it another way, it's the opposite of denying Jesus. Confession is the act of telling yourself and telling the public that you believe Jesus is who he says he is. And in that confession, if you believe he is who he says he is, because of what he says, that you submit yourself to him. And confession in this manner is an active part of our Christian faith. And it's so important to us that we do it every week here on Sunday. And we've already done it in one way, right? We've talked about the confession of sins this morning. And that's a little bit of a different type of confession. When we confess sins, what we do is we admit our sins to each other. But yet that confession is tied to what John's getting at here. Because in doing so, notice what we do. We confess that we are sinful and that we're in need of someone who can save us. And we confess that Jesus is the one who saves us from our sin. And so that confession is tied to what we're doing in, in, or what John's doing in chapter 12. And it's, it's a bigger picture, perhaps the better picture of confession, what it is to confess Jesus here in this passage is what we do after the sermon. And so after the sermon, we'll all stand up And we will read and proclaim out loud our confession of faith. And it's saying what it is that we believe. When standing up, we are publicly admitting our allegiance and proclaiming that we believe in Jesus Christ. And that type of public proclamation is something that this second group in John 12 had trouble doing. Now John tells us that this group believed in Jesus They didn't confess it. And that's why I've I've labeled this closet belief, because they believe in him, but they're not willing to take it in a more public setting. They believe in him, but they want to keep it tucked away. They want to keep it hidden in their closet. And John tells us why, why they want to do this. If you look at verse 42 and verse 43, he says that the reason this group didn't confess is because even though they believed in Jesus, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory 
that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And notice John goes right to the core of what's going on. He goes right to their fears and their loves. They feared the one they thought had power over them. They feared getting kicked out of the synagogue. And sure, they, they did have a certain power over those people. Getting kicked out of the synagogue would have been, it would have been excommunication. It would have been being kicked out of what they saw as their religion. But not only that, it would have been getting kicked out of their community. They would have been shunned by their friends, by their family, by their public. And they feared that. And instead, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And these are perhaps the defining motivations of what you might call closet belief, a fear and a love of man. Now, I think there's two ways that we can understand this group that's in this closet belief that are fearing and loving man. It's possible that John is talking about what you might call false believers. We talk sometimes about false professions of faith, and it's possible that's what John is getting at here. Maybe these people made a false, maybe they're not really, they're not really in, they're not really in the kingdom. Uh, in fact, one, one author put it, the authorities provide yet another example of a false profession of faith that has been described from the outset. And that may be true. It may be possible that this particular group serves an example as an example of what we would call false profession. But I'm not convinced that's really what John's after here. Rather, I see this group as a mixture and somewhere in between unbelief and eternal belief. And this way, it's a, it's a mixed group with mixed motives. And there's a few reasons I see it this way. And one is because I think this is what John's gospel does consistently. He shows us, right, Jesus' whole ministry is pulling people out of unbelief and into belief. And it's messy. It's not always clean. And so you can get examples, like the example of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus shows up in the early on, chapter 3 of John's gospel, and he doesn't really know who Jesus is. And so he doesn't really have this, this belief and then you see him twice more in the gospel. Once in the middle, in the middle of the gospel, he's right, he's with the Jewish authorities, and he's at a place where he could very easily publicly proclaim that Jesus is Lord, and he kind of hedges his bets. And he's like, hey, shouldn't we listen to this Jesus? So you see him kind of in this mixed category. But then at the end of John's gospel, Nicodemus is there when Jesus is buried, and he takes some of his own wealth and his own money, and he publicly puts himself on display to bury Jesus. And so I think you see these examples like Nicodemus of people with mixed motivations who Jesus is pulling from unbelief and into belief. And I think the clearest example for us, is maybe it's not Nicodemus, I think it's actually the apostle Peter. Because in chapter 18, John describes Peter explicitly denies Jesus. And remember, if you think about what it is to confess Jesus, it's the opposite of denial. And so Peter publicly does not confess Jesus three times. And John doesn't insinuate that, that Peter is a false believer. No, in fact, John spends part of his, his last chapters, chapter 21, showing this beautiful restoration where the Lord comes to Peter and restores him and redeems him. And so I think this group of closet believers is a way of describing people who hear Jesus, who believe in him, but still struggle to order our loves and our fears. And when I put it that way, I think most of ourselves, myself included, find 
that we are in that situation. We, we wrestle, even those of us who have committed to giving their lives to the Lord, wrestle with a type of closet belief at times. Like the authorities who didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue, there are times when I fear being shunned for my faith. And the reason I fear it is because there's some part of me that's, that's holding on to loving the glory of man more than the glory of God. And I tried to think of an example of how to, to make a connection, and the one that I kept coming back to is the example of uh, short-term cross-cultural missions. So I don't know if many of you in here have gone on short-term missions, but one thing that happens, if you talk to people who take a quick trip, whether it's a week or two weeks, and they go to take a mission trip, and you talk to them about the experience, which you find every single time for me, every time I talk to them, it's much less about the work that they did, and it's about the change that they experienced in their heart. And as I thought about, like, why is that the case? How does that apply here? And it's because I went on a a short-term mission trip once where I went to Cameroon, Africa, And what I found is when I went to Cameroon to work with this orphan outreach ministry that I work with, is I got there and it was so easy to talk to Cameroonians about Jesus. It was so easy. It was so easy to confess that that I am am his and that he is mine. And when I read this text, I realized that a big part of it is because I had no fear of man in Cameroon. They couldn't shun me. They couldn't kick me out of my synagogue. I have no idea what church is even like in America. They have their own church, and they have a wonderful, beautiful thing, but they didn't know my church. And so I have no fear of man to be shunned and to be thrown out. And I had no, also, not only did I have no fear of man, they really, they couldn't give me much glory over there either. Because I was leaving in a couple of days. Sure, they could say nice things to me or, or build me up, but that's really not doing that much. And so what we experience is when, when we go on these short-term missions, we're stripped away of that added aspect of, of having to worry about our fear and our love of man. And I think in, in that picture and in that reminder, when we then consider our normal context, we see why it can be such a struggle for us. Because we, like Peter, find it difficult at times to confess Jesus because we think that we are going to be shunned, that we're going to be kicked out, that we're going to be made less of. And I think that's why Jesus is crying out in verse 44. He knows there are people that don't believe. He knows there are people that believe but find it hard to confess. And he wants so badly for all of us to have eternal belief. So that's our third category this morning, eternal belief. I think eternal belief, this is the type of belief that John has in mind in writing his gospel. It's the, type, it's the purpose that he wrote this book, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that we would have life in his name. It's the type of belief where the one who believes receives eternal life. And here at the end of Jesus' public ministry, his last words to a crowd before he goes away in public, before he goes off to his execution, he is crying out because he wants Everyone, including the Jewish authorities, to believe in this way. Look at verse 46 with me. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And then later in verse 50, he says, I know that his commandment, the Father's commandment, the commandment that God gave to him, is eternal life. Jesus is pleading with his audience He's trying to get them to experience belief and eternal life. You just hear him trying to convince the crowd. 
He says to them, I've come as light. Look at me. I've healed your sick. I've loved your poor. I've given sight to blind men. I have even raised your dead. Leave your darkness behind. Come and believe in me. I am light. Follow me. And almost as if it's a last resort, he finally pleads with them one last time. If you're not going to listen to me, listen to the Father. His last words include, verse 44, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Right? He's thinking about this. He's trying to convince this crowd before the Passover in public. If you're not going to believe me, believe in him who sent me. Verse 45, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Verse 49, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. Verse 50, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What he's trying to do, he's trying to say, if you won't believe me, Believe the God that you at least say you believe in. (laughs) Listen to him. And if you want to see him, if you want to see that God, look at me. And so as many of you know, the reason he is so insistent here, he's so insistent with them, he, he resorts to anything he can to get them to believe, is because it is the most important issue that a person can face in life. Jesus is always pushing us towards eternal belief because it's it's what we all need more than anything else. And I say it's what we all need more than anything else, and that's regardless of which group you identify with. Whether you feel like you're in the unbelief category or you feel like you are secure in your eternal belief or you feel like you have mixed and you have eternal belief but you have trouble confessing it, Jesus' message is the same. So maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling with whether or not deep down you actually believe Jesus is who he says he is. That's that's fair. That's a good question to ask. And if that's where you are, if you are wrestling with belief, let me tell you, I don't think there's anything more important that you can ask. Push into that question. For just one implication, think about it. Jesus says that he has eternal life, that his commandment is eternal life. And if there's the slightest possibility that that's true, And I am up here every week. I'm here in our community every week because I believe that's true. If there's the slightest chance that it is, there is nothing more important than eternity. And know that Jesus wants you to believe. He has come into the world as light so that you may not remain in darkness. But as I consider our group and I consider our church, it gives me joy to know that most of you probably identify more with the second or third group. And I think that's what, one of the amazing parts of this passage is that his message to you is the same. Believe. Believe in Jesus. So how do we believe in Jesus then? Well, first, from this passage, I think we have to acknowledge that belief is a work of grace. We saw how earlier that unbelief, that first category, was tied to the absence of Jesus. Well, then belief involves his presence. And if belief involves the presence of God, there is nothing that you and I can do to force God to work. It is a work of his grace. It is not because of what we do. It is because of what he has chosen to do. God is the one who fashions the hearts of all men. So the first step 
in belief is to pray for a work of grace. Pray that our Father would be gracious to us, that the Lord would have mercy on us. And as we pray, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus because he has come so that we might believe. As verse 47 tells us, he has come to save the world. This was the whole purpose of his public ministry. He was once hidden, but he has come into the world as light and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we look to Jesus and what do we find? When we look to Jesus, we find mercy and grace. Because in verse 47, Jesus tells us that he has not come to judge the world. Now, it's very clear, reading the verses around that, he's not saying that judgment for unbelief will not take place. Judgment for unbelief will take place. But what he's saying is that the primary role of Jesus Christ, his primary mission, was to come as Savior, not judge. And I've mentioned before, part of the reason is that if he had come as judge first, we would have all been judged apart from mercy. If he had come in his power the first time and he had demanded his rights, then we would have all fallen short. And so when we look to Jesus, what we see is we see what we talked about a few weeks ago where his glory was in death and that death brought us life. Jesus Christ has come as Savior and he's brought mercy and reconciliation. And through him, we find God. Because whoever believes in Jesus believes in the one who sent him. So we find mercy and we find grace. Jesus' whole mission in his public ministry was getting people from unbelief to belief. And he has done that in his work of mercy and grace. Let us pray that he would be merciful and gracious to us and that he would give us the faith to believe. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning?